0: Uh, now my great pleasure to invite uh, Archbishop Glenn Davies to come up and preach uh, that passage to us. Uh, I remember a phone call uh, that started this whole process moving from something that was impossible to something that became possible. I uh, was sitting in my office uh, working away and my phone rang and there was a number I didn't recognize and uh, I picked it up, said hello, Stuart starts speaking, hello Stuart, this is your archbishop speaking. <laughs> oh, gracious. <laughs> what did I do wrong? Uh, it, was, uh, it was then uh, that, uh, that Glenn uh, started, uh, f- from my perspective anyway, uh, took the brakes off a project that had, had incredible foundation over so many years uh, that you of, you, many of you sitting here will know Uh, and turned it from an empty block of land with a sign that said Future Church to where we are today. And I just want to say, Glenn, I'm very thankful uh, that you did that and I'm looking forward to you coming and uh, preaching to us. Please do that.
1: Thank you, Stuart. Uh, Thank you very much for uh, reminding me of that conversation. Uh, It was a, a great opportunity, I think, to... Kickstart this whole process and project, but I was just one of many uh, people in a long line. My predecessor, Archbishop Robinson, in a presidential address in 1989, mentioned Oran Park as a growth area in our diocese, and we needed to keep our sights on that. And uh, through the work of uh, Mission Property Committee, uh, Regional Council, uh, individuals, and parishes who supported it, uh, the Periches' families, which is a very kind uh, relationship and building together, have brought us to where we are today. And what a great day it is, isn't it? And great to see so many people out there. It's good to know that, um, you know, still be wearing robes from now on. Uh, <laughs> you begin as you continue, don't you? And, uh, or perhaps just because the Archbishop's here, who knows, anyhow, but what a great day to celebrate in us, with some formality, but with great joy at what God is doing here and what God is can continue to do here. And this building is a facility for the people of God to grow. Uh, the image, the, the logo design is that uh, tree behind me, uh, which is a, a, a symbol of growth. It's an organic symbol. And often the Bible describes the church both in organic and inorganic terms because there's a sense of a building, but also a vine, a body, and it's wonderful to be a part of this and to see the Church of God gathered in this very fine building uh, with the opportunity for expansion and uh, very well designed and all those involved in the construction and architecture uh, and building. Uh, I'm very grateful and give thanks. Uh, let me pray before we look at this uh, passage from, that uh, Matthew read from Matthew's Gospel. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your spirit who inspired these words so long ago by your Apostle Matthew. And Father, we pray that your same spirit would work in our hearts, in our minds, and in our wills, that what we do would bring honour to the name of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. The passage from Matthew 16 is a pivotal point in the Gospel. A pivotal point in most of the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, where Jesus has the question to ask his apostles. He's just been feeding the 5,000 by the Sea of Galilee. He's uh, taught the disciples and then they've gone up to the far north to a place which in today is called Uh, uh In those days it was called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a, uh, it had an ancient name of Paneus, because it was uh, where the Greek god Pan was worshipped, along with many other gods as well. It's now reverted to that name, but it was in the first century Caesarea Philippi. Uh, Caesar, of course, was in Rome. Philip was a Tetrarch. And it's always very clever to honour your, uh, your leader with regard to a name in his honour. And it's quite subtle to put your own name at the end. So Caesarea Philippi, <laughs> it's a bit like this had been called not Marcus Lone Way, but Marcus Lone Starway. Way. Uh, th- that would have been another way of doing it. That's what Philip the Tetrarch did in terms of, of trying to honor Caesar, as we've honored here. But of course, Stuart's far too uh, humble, not to put it Starway. but <laughs> you may think of that from now on. Uh, Caesarea Philippi was a, a, a pagan place. It was not a place of religious significance in the life of, in the history of Israel. It was right in the northern borders, near the Golan Heights, as we know today. And this is where Jesus takes his disciples. And he takes them there with the intent of asking this particular question. He says to his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They knew he was talking of himself. He often referred to himself as the son of man. Who do people say that I am? This is one of the most crucial questions for anyone to answer. Who is Jesus? But he starts by asking, what do people say? What do others say with regard to who the son of man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still either Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Kind of curious answers, aren't they, for us in the 21st century? I imagine if you went walk down to Oran Park town and, uh, and asked people in the street, who do you say Jesus is? And I doubt you'd get, oh, I think John the Baptist, probably the first person I'd come to think of. Oh, no, maybe Jeremiah. Uh, maybe Elijah or, or, or one of the prophets? It's curious, isn't it? But in the first century, there was an expectation. There was an anticipation that the prophets of the Old Testament had predicted that in actual fact there'd be one like Elijah to come. There would be a Messiah, an anointed one, a king. John the Baptist had actually foretold this and John the Baptist of course had been recently beheaded, executed by the authorities, by Herod and so perhaps some thought John the Baptist had come back to life. Certainly there was an expectation that something was happening and Jesus seemed to fit the bill and the best they could do was describe him as one like a prophet. Islam describes Jesus as a prophet. And these first century believers were listening to the crowd. They'd done their little box pops. They'd done a bit of research. They'd heard what people were saying. And so they reported this back to Jesus. Well, this is what people say. But then Jesus says and looks intently to them and says, but what do you say? Who do you say that I am? It's all very well to get the popular opinion, to filter the news reports from the countryside, and we can leave the question about who Jesus is at an academic level, can't we, so easily. We can discuss it at a, a higher level so that it doesn't touch us personally. Personally. But the question remains, and the question comes with such poignancy to each and every one of us. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? And then Peter replies, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Short, crisp, succinct. In our English translations, you are the Christ. Of course, the Christ, a Greek word translating the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah, the Anointed One, the King. The one for whom we'd been longing. The one who had been foretold by the prophets. The one whom the Old Testament was always pointing towards, you are the Messiah, Christ, the King. You are the Son of the living God. You come as divinity among us. You come as God's own Son. This is God himself in front of me. This is the one of whom the prophets foretold, this is God's long-awaited Saviour. And Jesus replies, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. It's not that Jesus says to Peter, oh, well done, 10 out of 10. You've been listening, I can see. Congratulations, my word. You're a clever little fisherman, aren't you? I can see you're not just an ordinary man. You've worked this out. You've studied the scriptures. You've done well. None of that. God the Father has revealed himself to you. This is a spiritual awakening in Peter. This is the work of God by his spirit to open blind eyes, to unstuff and unstop deaf ears and to open a mute mouth so that that Peter might recognize who Jesus is. And friends, that continues to be the case. Stuart... Matthew can preach their heart out week by week here at New Life. But unless God takes that word by his spirit and implants it in the hearts of people who are listening, it will have no effect. It will be empty air. But God has promised to take his word and to use it for his purposes so that we'll never return to him void and just as God had used his word and brought new life in Peter so Jesus acknowledges that for Peter's sake as well as for ours you're blessed because this was not revealed to you by humans by your education by your heritage by your study by your degrees but by my father in heaven by my father in heaven not our father but the uniqueness of the father-son relationship that he knew how Peter had come to know and then Jesus goes on to say I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it this has been a a text which has had different interpretations in the history of the church. What does it mean when he says, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church? Of course, there's a play in the original language because the word for Peter is very similar to the word for rock, Petros, Petra. Uh, you might know the great city of Petra, which, was, which is basically a city full of rocks, uh, great mountain peaks that, that people have carved into if uh, Peter had had a nickname, uh, in actual fact, the, um, the Cotton Grass uh, Bible in the South America, they actually call Peter Rocky, <laughs> as you'd expect in America. Uh, but the sense in which he was the rock, because that was what his name was. And on this rock, I will build my church. Some have thought, of course, it actually is Peter. And our Roman Catholic brethren have seen that Peter is the rock and therefore the, the building tows from there. Uh, Protestants have often seen, no, it's not, what, it's not Peter, it's the confession. You are the Christ. In my view, it is the confessing Peter that is the rock. It's the apostle Peter, it's the confessing Peter that establishes this. Because the New Testament tells us that The church is built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. The New Testament is prophetic and apostolic. Its authority comes from God. And it is Peter representing the apostles who provides the apostolic word, the authoritative word from God. And the word is founded on defining who Christ is, explaining and expounding who Christ is as the Son of the Living God, the one whom God had promised to be the coming King. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. That's why we can have such confidence in God. That is, this church is built upon the apostolic confession. Of who Christ is. As new life, Anglican Church Norrin Park continues to grow. We're celebrating the opening of a building, and we praise God for that and thank him and delight in the generosity of so many people that have brought this to completion. But the work of the gospel goes on. And Stuart and Matthew, you must continue to preach. Christ the son of the living God the only way to the father the one in whom true life is found transforming life for the community not just for a holy huddle we're on a hill wonderful block of land with a wonderful tall light the light of the world shining there so people can see and come and hear and the community might find hope and have a fresh start that's what we're about. That's what we desire to see more and more people come to know the Lord Jesus as Lord and as Saviour in every community, in the school community just next door, in the villages, uh, sorry, in Anglicare just next door, in Cheselon, and for the whole community. We want to see God's name honoured and Christ Honored in the midst. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom, says Jesus. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In other words, the gospel has power. And the words of the gospel are the difference between life and death. And ministers of the gospel have the sacred responsibility of declaring to people, you can have eternal life if you turn to Jesus. But also the solemn statement, if you don't turn to Jesus, then condemnation is the outcome. This is not some academic discussion as to who Jesus is. This is a matter of life and death. Recognizing who Jesus is and not putting your trust in him will bring ultimate condemnation. Putting your trust in Jesus will bring eternal life. And then strangely, Jesus says, or Matthew records that Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Strange, isn't it? Because at this particular point in time, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. This was the turning point. And from that time, the next verse says, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things in the hand of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed on the third day, rise again. This was not the time to display who the Christ was because the manifestation of the Christ would be seen by his suffering and his death. The transparency of the New Testament in the flaws and the folly of the early disciples is not hidden in the next verse. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him Never, Lord, this will never happen to you. H- can you imagine what the scene will be like? Here is Peter, he's just made the confession. And he'd got a big tick from, from Jesus. All the disciples, no doubt, agreed. And then Jesus starts talking about suffering and death. Well, it's too much for Peter. So he draws, notice, he draws Jesus aside. He doesn't want to say this in front of the others. And he said, Now listen here, Jesus. <laughs> I've done Leadership 101. Uh, th- this is not the way to inspire the crowds. Uh, this is, look, all this talking about suffering, it's not going to be a winner. Look, we had 5,000 people uh, being fed from your hands. If you start talking about suffering and death, it'll dwindle, let me tell you. It's not going to go on. Uh, look, we want victory. Uh, you, you want passion in your voice. You, you've got to be you know, forward, forward thinking. You've got to gather the crowds around you. You've got to march into Jerusalem. You've, you've got to see yourself. If you're the Christ, you're the victor. You're the king. You're the anointed one. And all this business about suffering and death has got to go. Peter rebuked Jesus and then Jesus turns and says to Peter out of my sight Satan wow one moment you're the rock the next moment the Satan you're a stumbling block a stumbling block is a small stone of stumble that you stumble over. Uh, the Greek word comes f- is from which we get the word scandal. You're a scandalon. No longer a petra, but a scandal. From a rock of foundation to a rock of offense. Get behind me, Satan. It's not... Peter who is the rock in his person it's the confessing Peter and Peter has here stumbled you don't have the mind of the things of God but of men the church will be criticized for all kinds of things in this world for our moral stance on certain issues in society For our commitment to the teaching of the Bible in terms of morality, in terms of every aspect of life, to the way we conduct business, relationships in the family, honouring people, doing good in the community. But we'll be criticised for all kinds of old fashioned ideas, but that's because we think the things of God and not the things of men good friday that day of death and sacrifice is in our calendar a good friday because of what will come three days later peter did not understand that he didn't understand what jesus was going to do and even though he talked about resurrection it's as if he'd heard the word suffering and death and that was enough then Jesus goes on and says if anyone would come after me they must deny themselves take up their cross and follow me because suffering is not just inimical to Jesus but is reflective in the life of every disciple suffering yes even death We've seen the way in which Christians around the world have suffered at the hands of militant Islamists. We've seen the way in which Christians have had to stand their ground and declare who they are. On the eve of Good Friday in Garissa, in a Christian college in the north of Kenya, not far from Somalia, Jihadist Islamists came in and called all the students together and asked them this question, are you a Christian or are you Muslim? Knowing that to answer yes to the former would mean certain death. Yes to the latter would mean life. I often wonder if Anglicans in the Diocese of Sydney would have the same courage as 148 people who answered, yes, I'm a Christian and were summarily executed. Who do you say Jesus is? Would you follow him to your death? Because that is what's demanded and has been the case for many Christians through the centuries, as well as in recent times, as we well know. We complain about all kinds of things which don't go wrong in our life, but our allegiance to Jesus ought to be up front and centre ought to be paramount in all that we do. For this is what Jesus calls us to be. Anyone who would save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. For what good will it be if a person were to gain the whole world and forfeit their own soul? Can a person give What can he give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels and he will reward each person according to what he has done. Jesus does not look to the end of this life, transitory as it is, but to the life to come. And Jesus is going to return. And bring in a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness shall dwell. Where the kingdom of God will flourish without sin and death and decay. But now, though we live in this temporal transitory world, where we live where people don't know Jesus, we have such a mission before us to proclaim the name of the Lord Jesus. And I thank God for this church. Here in Oran Park, to do exactly that. There may well be struggles ahead of you, opposition that you will face, but stand firm, declare who Jesus is with courage, conviction, and commitment, boldly declaring that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the King. Jesus is the son of the living God and only in him can forgiveness of sins be found and the gift of eternal life. What a treasure we have to share. What a glory for this building to bear testimony to the community here and beyond that Jesus is both Lord and Savior. In February this year, 21 men were walked to their death He was in Libya they were Coptic Christians dressed in orange overalls side by side with a man in black with a face covered but for slits for the eyes they too had confessed Christ even unto death An Arabic Christian in Egypt wrote a poem, Two Rows by the Sea. It has now become the most published tract, Christian tract, in Egypt after the Bible. It's been translated into many languages. Let me read you the English translation. Two rows of men walked the shore of the sea. On a day when the world's tears would run free. One a row of assassins who thought they did right. The other of innocents, true sons of the light. One holding knives in hands held high. The other with hands empty, defenseless and tied. One row of slits, to conceal glaring dead eyes, the other with living eyes raised to the skies. One rose stood steady, pall bearers of death, the other knelt ready, welcoming heaven's breath. One rose spewed wretched, contemptible threats, the other spread God given peace and rest a question who fears the other the row in orange watching paradise open or the row in black with minds evil and broken may God give us the courage to confess Christ crucified and risen in whom alone is found forgiveness of sins and may new life at Oran Park be found for many thousands of people. Amen.